Hello, I'm Dr. Jim Taylor, and welcome to episode 21 of my Crisis to Opportunity podcast. This episode is the first of four in which I explore the importance of attitude in how you respond to a crisis. The topic for this episode is victim to master. Now, attitudes are so important to how you react to crises. They act as the filter through which you look at, understand, interpret, feel about, evaluate, decide on, and respond to a crisis. An attitude is defined as a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something, typically one that is reflected in a person's behavior. According to the so-called ABC model of attitudes, attitudes are comprised of three components. First, there's the affective, that's the A, component, which involves the emotions you experience related to the attitude, such as fear. Second, the behavioral, that's the B, component, encompasses how the attitude impacts your response to the crisis. For example, avoidance. Third, the cognitive, that's the C, component, is comprised of your thoughts about the crisis. For example, I can't overcome this crisis. As you can see, your attitude toward a crisis has a wide-ranging impact on what you think, how you feel emotionally, and how you react to it. For example, Sam loses his corporate job due to downsizing. His attitude toward his job loss will largely determine how he responds. If his attitude is negative, for example, in this economy, I'll never find a job I want. His emotional reaction to the situation will likely include anxiety, doubt, and worry, what I call a crisis mentality. As a result, Sam will probably delay or avoid looking for a new job. Conversely, if he thinks, this is a chance to reevaluate my professional life and find work that better aligns with my values, then he is more likely to approach his job loss with excitement, inspiration, and determination. That is to say, an opportunity mindset. Subsequently, Sam will be more likely to embrace the challenge of finding a new job, and he may even find one that he likes better. As you can see, your attitudes can be either a weapon that hinders your efforts or a tool to boost your efforts when faced with a crisis. Attitudes as weapons are negative, critical, stress-inducing, and distracting. Attitudes as tools are positive, supportive, calming, and focusing. A challenge with attitudes, though, is that they can be either conscious or unconscious. By conscious, I mean that you're aware of your attitudes, you know where they came from, they're readily available to think about, and they're relatively easy to change as well. Conscious attitudes develop through experience, introspection, and deliberate choice. For example, based on how crises have impacted your life in the past and the way you observed others positively or negatively managing crisis, you may develop an appreciative attitude toward crises and choose to see them as an opportunity for growth. In contrast, unconscious attitudes are far more murky. You may not know how they developed. They aren't easy to assess. For example, as a child, you may have seen your father panic in crises, which led you to develop a panic attitude toward crises yourself. Your goal is to ensure that you consciously choose attitudes about a crisis that will support your efforts to overcome it. You accomplish this objective with several steps. First, become aware of your own attitudes toward a crisis and whether they help or hurt you. Two, identify attitudes that will help you overcome the crisis. Three, if you find a discrepancy between the attitudes you hold and those that will best serve you as you face a crisis, you should examine how the unhelpful attitudes developed acknowledge the benefits of the healthier attitudes, and gradually shift your attitudes in a more productive direction. From Winston Churchill, 
the great British Prime Minister. Attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference. Now let's explore the victim versus master attitude. Since the fight or flight reaction has been ingrained in our genes for hundreds of thousands of years, it's easy to be consumed by a crisis mentality and become a victim of your own inner experience. Your thinking, emotions, and reactions can make you feel like you're being swept down a rushing river in a canoe without a paddle and no way to resist the current. This primordial psychology and physiology driven by your amygdala is immediate and so visceral that it can overwhelm and victimize you. At the same time, as I've talked about previously in this podcast, we are fortunate that our cerebral cortex developed and gives us the capacity to exercise conscious control over our thinking, emotions, and reactions. It acts as a master by interrupting our primitive instincts and enabling us to make deliberate choices about how we choose to respond to crises. Your ability to master these intense and deeply entrenched reactions will give you one more way to resist the gravitational pull of the crisis mentality and leverage an opportunity mindset in the face of large and small crises. From the poet laureate Maya Angelou, you may not control all the events that happen to you, but you can decide not to be reduced by them. So now let's take a deep dive into what it means to being a victim in a crisis. Crises send a very loud message that something has occurred that threatens our status quo. Moreover, many aspects of crises today, as I've talked about before, are out of our control. Common examples include the COVID-19 crisis, car accidents, illnesses, and a natural disaster. This lack of control leads us to feel helpless and more vulnerable to fall into the role of a victim. Although there are absolutely objective aspects of crises that we have no control over, we do have control over our attitude. In other words, it's our attitude toward the crisis that you can control. To respond well, you must have a positive attitude from which you can operate. This means your attitude ultimately dictates whether you experience it as a master or as a victim in a crisis situation. From Emma Watson, the English actress and activist, I am not what happened to me. I am what I choose to become. Here's some things that can lead you straight to victimhood. Focusing on the externals of a crisis. When a crisis strikes, we are wired to focus intently on its external causes. The goal of which is to ensure that we pay enough attention to resolve the crisis and ensure our survival. Now that approach worked when crises tended to be more immediate and in your face. Think saber-toothed tiger or rival tribesperson. Because today's crises are often at a distance, delayed, and beyond our explicit control, focusing on external causes can produce a sense of victimization. There's nothing I can do about it. Instead of leading to a sense of urgency and action that is needed to surpass the crisis, external focus may actually encourage a sense of victimhood because it takes away from the attention that needs to be on the elements of the crisis over which we do have control. The most notable element is our attitude. From Daniel Goleman, the author and science journalist. One way to boost our willpower and focus is to manage our distractions instead of letting them manage us. Another thing that will lead directly to being a victim is having a pity party. As I discussed in an earlier episode, crises generate a tsunami of truly unpleasant emotions, one of which can be self-pity. When life doesn't go as you want, it's easy to fall into a woe is me mentality and to have a pity party in an attempt to avoid having to take responsibility for the cause 
or resolution of the overwhelming situation at hand. Usually this response produces a lot of sympathy, which feels good, but doesn't have any practical value in addressing the crisis. From Eleanor Roosevelt, the American diplomat and activist, no one can make you feel inferior without your permission. Another thing that can lead to victimhood is focusing on the forest. Crises these days are often so multifaceted that they can be overwhelming. There's so much to identify, understand, synthesize, decide, and act on, those are the trees, that you simply feel unprepared to do it all. Often, the natural reaction when this happens is to do nothing and fall into victimhood. Of course, crises don't go away because you want them to, just like you don't find your way out of the forest by looking at each individual tree. While this may provide temporary relief, the end result is that you don't find your way out. From Abraham Lincoln, you cannot escape the responsibility of tomorrow by evading it today. Another thing that leads to victimhood is not recognizing your capabilities. At the heart of victimhood is the belief that you aren't capable of overcoming the magnitude of challenges a crisis presents to you. Holding this belief can make you feel like you're standing at the base of Mount Everest without any climbing experience or the alpine gear necessary to reach the summit. Now, let's explore what it means to be a master. People look at those who respond to crises with a plume and calm, whether a soldier saving a comrade, a boy standing up to bullies, a CEO trying to save her company, or a president leading the country during a recession. They're often considered to be a special breed quite unlike us normal human beings. We see them as people who don't experience crises the same way that the rest of us do. They have intestinal fortitude or nerves of steel, or they're seen as being made of Teflon. It's as if they're somehow endowed with superpowers that we mortals simply don't have and aren't capable of ever possessing. Though these seemingly extraordinary people are certainly worthy of our great admiration for their remarkable acts of courage and determination, putting these heroes up on a pedestal gives them too much credit and ourselves too little credit. As I've noticed previously, our primitive instincts are reactions that we are physically incapable of completely divorcing ourselves from. In addition, from our cells to our outward appearance, human beings are surprisingly alike. The reality is that quite often we all feel similarly, but with varying degrees of intensity depending upon our inborn temperament and life experiences. The seemingly battle-hardened worries of whom we stand in awe actually experience fear, frustration, anger, and occasionally despair, just like the rest of us. They're human. The difference is not the absence of an emotional reaction, but they respond positively to the crises in the face of those intense feelings. What we attribute to these stalwarts as being exceptional is better explained as ordinary people who do extraordinary things because they were prepared to do them. For example, police officers, trauma surgeons, and soldiers weren't born into these careers. Rather, they trained to do their jobs, which informed who they became and were able to accomplish what they did and continue to do. They've learned to master their emotional reactions when confronted by a crisis rather than falling victim to them. In other words, you are equally capable of responding to crises with an opportunity mindset if you develop attitudes similar to those seemingly remarkable people whom we hold in such high esteem. What holds many people back from gaining this mastery is their belief that our reactions are set in stone at birth and as a result are not amenable to change. Yes, as I discussed previously, the temperament we are born with has an influence on our reactions to a crisis. 
At the same time, genetics are not destiny, which means that biology is not the only influence on our reactions to a crisis. Our experiences also have an important impact. In fact, our responses, as I suggest throughout my Crisis Through Opportunity podcast, are not a single immutable personality trait at all. Instead, they're a constellation of attitudes, beliefs, resources, and skills that develop with experience and deliberate effort, which allow us to change how crises impact our lives. From Roger Crawford, the first athlete to play a Division I college sport with a severe disability. Being challenged in life is inevitable. Being defeated is optional. Here are some ways you can become a master in a crisis. First, prepare yourself. Mastery of a crisis begins before crises even occur and well before you experience their associated emotional reactions. Much like you train for a marathon to prepare yourselves for the rigors of the 26.2 mile distance, you can also train and prepare yourself for the challenges of a crisis. First, gain a clear understanding of the situations you experience as crises. Second, identify the thoughts, emotions, and reactions that result from the crisis. Third, develop strategies to gain control of those reactions before they occur. If you can accomplish these three steps, then you will be ready when a crisis arises, and you will be better able to respond to it in a positive and constructive way. From Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, the French aviator and author, a goal without a plan is just a wish. Another way to become a master of a crisis is to know the situation. The situation in which a crisis occurs plays a huge role in your reaction to it. Think about the experience of being diagnosed with serious illness, the loss of your financial nest egg, or a divorce. Each of these circumstances are likely associated with different thoughts and different feelings. Being able to see the situation in which the crisis occurs allows you to identify your most likely reactions and the strengths you have at your disposal. In doing so, you're better able to predict and head off those ineffective reactions, encourage yourself to take on the role of master rather than victim, and respond in a productive way. Also, know your thoughts. We have thoughts about everything. It's important to be aware of how you tend to think about things when under stress, as your initial thoughts can often determine the direction that our reactions take after a crisis hits. To illustrate the importance of our thoughts, consider the following thoughts. There's nothing I can do about this. Or, I'm just not going to let this happen. Obviously, each of these thoughts will produce very different thinking, emotions, and reactions. If you know the typical thoughts you have when confronted by a crisis, you can anticipate and prevent unhealthy thinking from dictating your response. In addition to knowing your thoughts, you also want to know your emotions. We tend to respond to stressful situations in characteristic ways. Some of us react with upset and tears. Others get angry and yell. Still others react with fear and attempts to avoid the crisis altogether. And there are the rare few who stay cool as a cucumber in a crisis. Being able to recognize your own pattern of emotions in reaction to a crisis allows you to foresee and preempt those emotions if they interfere with your ability to respond productively to the crisis. From John C. Maxwell, the American author and speaker, people may hear your words, but they feel your attitude. Another helpful way to become a master in a crisis is to identify your strengths. It's absolutely essential that you identify your strengths when faced with a crisis. Focusing on the assets that you bring to such a stressful situation counteract the feelings of helplessness that can lead to victimhood.
whether they're general capabilities or a skill set specific to the crisis, reconnecting with those strengths will help you tackle the crisis, gives you a boost of confidence and motivation that will help you more easily assume the role of master. Also, you want to focus on the trees. As I just mentioned, when a crisis hits, it's easy to become overwhelmed by the enormity of the forest you find yourself in. In this case, to cut the crisis down to size and make it more manageable, it's best to shift your focus from the expansiveness of the forest down to the specifics of the trees. In other words, identify key elements of the crisis and direct your attention and energy onto those areas. As the crisis continues, you can move from tree to tree until the crisis is resolved. From Warren Buffett, the business magnate and philanthropist, someone sitting in the shade today because someone planted a tree long ago. Another essential tool is to have a plan. It's very difficult to alter your reactions to a crisis in the moment because the force of your instincts and emotions is immediate and powerful. But you can stop, mitigate, or even alter that reaction if you have a plan in place before the crisis arises. For example, think back to elementary school when the fire drills were conducted to prepare students and teachers for how to respond safely when the fire alarm sounds. If these drills weren't completed on a regular basis, imagine the chaos that would ensue if a fire were to break out. Students would be terrified, teachers would be trying to remain calm and think, kids might get lost without a pre-planned way to keep track of them. Understanding the context in which crises may occur in your life and the typical thoughts and emotions you have in response allows you to devise a plan that includes a challenge response, an opportunity mindset, and constructive actions that are readily accessible when a crisis strikes. From Alan Lakin, the time management author, failing to plan is planning to fail. Lastly, you want to make sure you take the good road. At the heart of being a master is knowing the perceptions you hold about yourself in the crisis, and the emotions you feel and use that information to choose how you will respond to the crisis. As I discussed in one of my early podcasts, how you learn to respond to a crisis is a simple but not easy choice. If you have the option to experience unhealthy emotions and take unproductive action that leads to a poor outcome of the crisis, or the option to experience healthy emotions and take productive action that leads to the crisis ending well for you, the choice is simple as you would certainly choose the latter option. That said, while it is a simple choice, it is not an easy one to make because millions of years of evolution and deeply ingrained habits born of your temperament and life experiences can compel you to react in ways that prevent you from responding well to the crisis. Take Bethany Hamilton, the professional surfer who lost her arm after being attacked by a shark. By focusing on her strengths as an individual and taking her recovery one step at a time, she was able to see the trees rather than becoming consumed by the enormity of the forest. As a result, in a short time, she returned to competitive surfing with remarkable success. Learning to make the simple but not easy choice when confronted with a crisis involves recognizing the forks in the road where you avoid going down the bad road that leads to becoming a victim and choose to take the good road that allows you to master the crisis. The great thing about making the simple but not easy choice when facing a crisis is that it is self-rewarding. When you make the simple but not easy choice when a crisis arises, you feel good, you do good, and the outcome will more likely be good as well. From James Allen, the 19th century British writer, self-control is strength, right thought is mastery, calmness is power. I'm Dr. Jim Taylor, and thanks for listening to episode 21 of Crisis to Opportunity.
and be on the lookout for episode 22 in the near future.